basically taking the snow hardness measurement to the next level with better repeatability and quicker collection times. It really gives you the ability to collect a bunch of data very, very quickly and um, being able to assess differences of snowpack on different aspects, even different micro aspects is really great. This is Joe Travato. And this is Garrett Harmson. And you're listening to the Avalanche Hour podcast. You are tuned into another episode of the Avalanche Hour podcast, your source for great conversations within the snow and avalanche community. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by VEASAN Avalanche Control, safety through innovation. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people with a curious fascination of avalanches. Well, I hope everybody's having a joyous holiday season out there. Um, Hope you all are finding some some nice powder turns and safe terrain given the snowpack structure across uh, many regions of the western U.S. at least. Today I'm excited to share an interview with Garrett Harmson and Joe Travato of Propagation Labs. Propagation Labs is a company that has kind of spurred from Avatech, which was a company that was developing a digital snow penetrometer that, that measures the hardness of the snowpack beneath your feet, uh, essentially without digging into the snow. Um, Of course, there are some nuances to this, and we're going to get into all of that in this interview, but it's a really cool uh, model that Joe and Garrett have here, and and I should add that it's it's kind of a super passion project for these two guys. They started out working for Avatech, who developed the SP1 and SP2 digital snow penetrometer, Um, and then these guys are carrying that torch on um, into the future and trying to make some new improvements and developments to that technology and make it a bit more user-friendly. They also have a great app out there, and we're going to get into all of that here shortly. But first, I wanted to mention some additional support for this episode is provided by Six Point Engineering. Six Point Engineering out of Nelson, British Columbia, specializes in engineering design, avalanche risk assessments, mountain safety services, and project management. Greg Johnson and his team has a unique skill set that includes hazard assessment, infrastructure design, project management, avalanche forecasting, and control programs. They serve the oil and gas, transportation, hydroelectric, mining, ski area, and land development industries. If you're scratching your head over some difficult questions in the mountains for your next project, look no further than Six Point Engineering. You can find more out at sixpointeng.com. That's the number, sixpointeng.com. And to find out a little bit more about what Six Point Engineering does, you can check out my great interview with Greg Johnson back on episode 519. Thanks for your support, Six Point Engineering. And without further ado, let's jump in with Garrett Harmson and Joe Travato. All right, Joe and Garrett, welcome to the show. Joe Travato and Garrett Harmson are from Propagation Labs. I was hoping you guys could introduce yourselves and 
Give us the story behind Propagation Labs. Hey, so I'm Joe Travato, um, and I'm a recreational backcountry skier, but more importantly, I'm an engineer that's been working to develop some technology um, to help decrease spatial variability in the snowpack through uh, first being an engineer at Avatech uh, and now um, being a founder and engineer at Propagation Labs. Yeah, and, and Propagation Labs, for those of you who aren't familiar, because we are a fairly new company, um, we are a company that's dedicated to measuring the snowpack. Um, so we are creating tools, software, and systems to better help understand the snowpack under our feet. Um, and most of you probably know us uh, through the Snowscope Digital Snow Penetrometer, um, which if you're not familiar with it, it is a um, basically a snow probe with sensors on the end of it that gives you a digital hardness profile of the snowpack under your feet. Um, so think of it as an electronic hand hardness profile. Um, you basically would push this penetrometer or probe into the snowpack under your feet. Sensors will measure that snow, and those sensors will then um, create a snow hardness profile uh, within seconds. Um, so basically taking the snow hardness measurement to the next level with better repeatability and quicker collection times. Yeah, so maybe give us a, a bit of a background of, of what snow penetrometers are and kind of the history uh, throughout snow science. Um, I, I would imagine going back, you know, eight, almost 80 years in Switzerland is, is where maybe the first snow penetrometers started. Um, but give us a, a brief history of how they're used and how they've evolved. Yeah, so the, the history is actually pretty pretty long and deep, and and uh, right, the hand hardness test originated, um, I don't in the 30s, 40s, maybe even before in Switzerland, kind of when avalanche science was um, just getting started. I mean, it was really the only way to quantify what the layering of the snowpack was back in the day, um, and quickly it became apparent as the Swiss and others in Europe were. Um, taking more of these hand hardness profiles and trying to correlate that with avalanche danger, that the hand hardness profile is inherently a um, very subjective test. Um, it depends on who's doing it. Um, it depends on you know how hard they're pushing into the snow, what they see as the layers of concern that day. Um, and if you're trying to compare snow profiles from one place to another, they even found that back in the day it, it wasn't really as good as, as they would like. Um, so the RAM penetrometers developed in the 50s and 60s, um, which if you're not familiar with it, is a uh, basically a snow probe that you will drop weights onto. Um, you'll record how far that probe moves for each weight dropped, um, and then input all that data into a spreadsheet, and you can back out a hardness profile based on the RAM. And that RAM helped to standardize the um, kind of hardness profiles of the snow, because theoretically, no matter who's using it, if you're dropping the weights in the same way, you're going to get the same results in the same snowpack. Um, but there were some issues with it. Um, it is a large tool to carry around with a lot of weights. It's not the easiest thing to use or the quickest thing to use, but it was the only way to create a more objective snow hardness profile. 
and then moving forward from that, it, it became somewhat of an operational tool, mostly in Europe, um, and kind of used variably in North America throughout that time. Um, but there were always people that you know saw that there could be improvements to the RAM, and so there were quite a few projects um, starting, you know, in the, even in as early as the '60s and the '70s, um, a thing called the Snow Resistograph was made, which um, similar somewhat of an idea to a RAM, but um, you know, in the, the analog days back then, it actually recorded a snow profile on a um, with a needle and a pen on a spinning reel of paper, some, something like a you know you'd envision a seismograph to look like, um, which is pretty impressive back in the day that they could uh, create something like that to be used in the field. But it shows that people kind of identified this problem and were thinking about it and saw that there are ways to improve. Um, and kind of the, the bigger, biggest next breakthrough came in the late 90s at SLF in Switzerland when they developed the Snow Micro Penetrometer, um, which is still in use today. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty cool uh, scientific tool to um, digitally record the uh, snow hardness. And similar, it works in a similar way to what we've created today, but um, it uses a force transducer on the end that's that's pushing into the snowpack and recording how hard it is to push through the snowpack. Um, but it also includes a full base setup um, with an encoder and a motor drive to push it into the snow. So while, while it's a pretty accurate tool, um, it's really expensive and quite hard to use in a lot of cases. So from an operational perspective, it never really caught on. Um, and yeah, so that's actually been around since the late 90s. It's still seeing use today, um, but right, it's not really seeing use operationally. And people saw that there was promise in that, I guess, since the early 2000s to improve it. And there's been multiple attempts um, to create something based on the SMP, but make it easier to use, cheaper, lighter, kind of all of those things. So it actually be used operationally. Um, starting with things like the Sabre probe up in Canada in the 2000s, the Capacitech probe, um, and a couple other uh, attempts by different researchers or, or small companies over time. Um, and then the next big attempt um, was in probably starting about 10 years ago uh, by Avatech. And Joe, if you want to talk about that. Sure. Yeah, Caleb, I can walk you through the history of Avatech and how that uh, kind of evolved in propagation labs. So uh, Avatech started uh, from a group of students at MIT, uh, kind of similar to us and similar story to a bunch of people where they had uh, kind of gotten into the backcountry and kind of identified this need for uh, increased accuracy and repeatability of snow measurements. Um, for operational forecasts. Uh, so they uh, started Avatech um, and they actually hired um, Garrett and I, uh, some of their first engineers to help them work on their products called the SP1 and SP2. Uh, those products were uh, similar to what we were trying to do today um, and had a couple of drawbacks, uh, but was kind of like the the first real big step i think at popularizing a digital penetrometer um so we had worked for them for a few years uh, and we learned quite a bit uh, in those few years um one uh that 
snow is a very technical, technically challenging substance to measure. Um, so the SP1 and the SP2 um, had a couple of technical hurdles um, that were really difficult to get over. And, and Garrett and I, uh, along with the team over at Avatech, worked on uh, kind of solving those technical challenges. Um, in the meantime, we also learned a lot about uh, the snow industry in general, uh, mainly that uh, the snow industry is a pretty small, tight-knit community of folks uh, that maybe weren't uh, ready for a big kind of mass market product push. Uh, so I think there was some slight uh, market business model misalignments there that uh, led us to run into uh, some money troubles, especially on the professional snow and avalanche safety side of the business. Uh, so fast forward a few years, um, you know, Avatech's, uh business had, was kind of closing its doors. Um, and Garrett and I were still very interested in the technology that we were working on. Um, we still felt that it had promise in an industry, maybe with a, a slightly different model uh, and a slightly different way of getting it to the folks that we felt uh, this tech would really make a difference for. Um, so we did end up uh, kind of taking that project over. Um, and that is how Propagation Labs was born. Yeah, it seems like you both have a, a strong passion for this project and have have hit many hurdles along the way, both with Avatech and I'm sure um, with Propagation Labs, you know, as you would anticipate having some hurdles there. Um, so it's great that you guys are, are continuing on this project. Um, maybe highlight some of the differences between the current snow scope and the SP1 and SP2 uh, iterations there. Yeah. So th there's quite a, quite a few differences there. Um, and really compared to all the, the probes that I kind of talked about before and all the different attempts, um, really the, the biggest stopping point that the reason that none of these probes have been really operationally successful in the past is the fact that it's really hard to measure depth in the snowpack. So as you push a probe through the snowpack, you're getting a force measurement of how hard that snow is to push through and a depth measurement of where you are actually under the snow. Um, and that depth measurement has been a huge challenge for everyone who's tried to do it before. Um, and, and really, you know, if you're 20 centimeters off probe after probe, that data is not really going to be that useful from an operational perspective. If you don't really know where your layers are under the snowpack. Mm. So the biggest change that we made from the SP one and the SP two um, is to use totally different sensors um, for measuring depth. Um, we're actually using a, it's called an optical flow sensor. That's basically what's in your computer mouse um, that takes thousands of images a second as you push the probe through the snowpack. It's comparing differences between those images and it's backing out a distance traveled. So we're able to um, actually get very accurate depths, um, averaging about 1% of the depth air. Um, as you push it through. So, you know, if you, there's a layer at hundred centimeters deep, you can be pretty sure that the reading that you get from our instrument is probably within a centimeter or two of actually hundred centimeters. Um, and at that level of accuracy, um, we believe it's actually a useful instrument from an operational standpoint. Um, so that's probably the biggest change versus the SP1 and the SP2. And also compared to all the other probes that have tried this in the past. Um, 
made quite a few other changes as well. Uh, we've, you know, in the last 10 years, smartphones have come so far and become much more of an accepted thing to carry in the backcountry. And, you know, you have all kinds of tools on them. Um, so we decided to leverage the power of the smartphone and use that as your display for seeing all the profiles, for sharing all the profiles, for um, really viewing your history of profiles. Um, so we've built that out into a um, data kind of data sharing platform and data cataloging platform. So um, just it's, it opens the door up to so many more ways to view snowpack data over time, over seasons, over space, um, in a really simple format that people are used to these days. Um, so yeah, that's, that's basically the, the big differences, um, that we've made. Joe, anything else to add on that? No, I think you, you, you hit it on the head. Um, uh, one thing I would like to mention about the transformation from the Avitech SP1 and SB2 to the Propagation Lab Snow Scope uh, was that those products were designed and manufactured um, with cost as a, a really big factor uh, as a design constraint. So we completely redesigned the sensors in the device uh, without cost as as, a, as strict of a requirement and. Once you open up that limitation, we were able to get higher quality sensors in the device. And I think that made a really big difference in the usability um, as well as the quality of the data. Um, so I think the SP1 and the SP2 struggled with uh, sensor quality uh, and data quality and um, as a result made the device not very usable. Uh, so once you kind of up that uh, data quality, uh, the device came much more usable and usable to the point that we believe, you know, it's very useful as a scientific tool, but also useful in these high stress operational situations. So we're seeing, you know, people like guides and ski patrols and forecasters being able to pick this thing up and um, intuitively know how to use it uh, and have it be useful as opposed to you know, having to pour through a manual and understand a nuanced technique and treating it more like a scientific instrument. And and would you guys say that with Avatech, like the marketing of the SP1 and SP2, like they were trying to kind of push that towards the professional and recreational user. And so that's, that's kind of where the limitation of the the sensors came was trying to hit that price point so that it would be more attractive to more consumers. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, with Avatech, the I mean, the entire business model, it was a venture funded startup um, that had to generate returns on that money. And you're not going to generate those returns if you're only selling to the small professional network. So there was pressure for sure to to sell to recreationalists at Avatech. And Luckily, the way Joe and I are doing this now as a part-time side hobby business where we can really focus on making the tools right for the right market, being the professionals, um, we've kind of removed that limitation and I think came out with a better product because of it. Right. So that, yeah, that kind of leads me to the next question, which is, who is this for? And it sounds like it's it's more for operational forecasting 
um, less for the recreational user. But of course, that carries into helping the whole community gain a better picture of what's going on in a snowpack in a certain certain geographic area, right? Yeah, Caleb. So we've gone back and forth uh, first as Avatech and then as Propagation Labs about who exactly this device is designed for. And we keep coming back to it. It makes a lot of sense for the professional users, the people that have their heads in the snow and that really care about that spatial variability um, in their day-to-day job. Um, These are the people that get the most use out of the Snowscope probe. Um, We do have some recreationalists, I believe, using the probe as well. And these are the real snow geeks out there that, that really want to dig into the snowpack. Um, but we find that it's, it's much more tuned for professional use. Um, and this is probably a, a technical challenge on our end in that we actually haven't found a great way to present the sheer quantity of data that the Snowscope provides in a consumable way that would be useful for recreationalists. The professionals are, are always like, yes, give me more data. I love it. I, I want to sift through it. And they have the time to do that. Um, but uh, we are still working on tools and ways to make that data a little bit more accessible to the recreational skier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it seemed like Avatech was kind of morphing that way with Mountain Hub, right? Which was kind of an, correct me if I'm wrong, but an offshoot of Avatech that was crowdsourced information that would populate observations from a specific range or geographic area. Um, and people could access those observations much like on any of our local avalanche center websites where you could look at observations there, right? Yes, uh, precisely. So Avatech started with a site called Avanet, which was the snow professional observation site. Um, and eventually the entire company pivoted into mountain hub, um, kind of maybe upon, uh, discovering the market appetite for um, tech in the the snow science and professional snow community to to really broaden um, the type of observations that were coming in. Um, So it spanned four seasons and had many more observation types. But yes, uh, it was definitely kind of a platform to collect that and definitely opening up that funnel uh, gets a lot more users to the platform. Sure. And so um, I I really appreciate you guys painting the picture of of the history behind all of this because, you know, as with anything in our industry, we kind of stand upon the shoulders of those that came before us and and build upon the progress there. Um, And it's exciting to hear that that you you all are continuing to do that, maybe even on a shoestring budget, right? And in and it seems like you have the right goals in mind to help out um, the whole community here. So I would imagine that the the reluctance, you know, in some of the earlier digital snow penetrometers came about with with not being able to trust the technology and snow professionals being so used to having such an intimate feel when they dig a snow pit and 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 conduct a hand hardness test uh, for a snow profile. And so how, how can we, how can we trust this, the snow scope essentially compared to 
our hand hardness profiles, which as you've highlighted, have, have limitations in and of themselves with human error and human variance from my fist hardness to your fist hardness, which we'd like to think that it's totally standardized, but I'm sure any scientist out there would, would be like, this is not science, right? This isn't, this isn't that measurable. So how can we trust it? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, briefly touching upon your your comments of standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, we definitely owe a lot to um, the original Avatech. I think without their uh, kind of funding and guidance, we would have never had enough uh, time and resources to invest in finding what we believe is is the right solution for this. And yeah, that gets down to the question of trust. Um, I always like to draw upon the statistics for avalanche airbags um, when we're talking about trust, like within our, our snow and uh, science and safety industry. And I, I think it airbags have been around for a long time. And I think it was just recently they've started being adopted in large quantities. I think it took about 10 years for, for the uptake of, of airbags to kind of make it uh, mainstream. So with that in mind, I think, I think trust for new technology is definitely, uh, one of the challenges that we deal with. And we encourage all of our users to get out there and try to, you know, compare the snow pits that they dig and that they've been used to digging for years, uh, with the data that our device gives. Um, as far as trust from a publishing perspective, we've tried to put as much data on our website and publish as many of, of our comparisons um, that we can. Garrett, do you have anything to add on this front? Yeah, I just I just say that also we're not developing this thing in a vacuum. You know, sometimes you get the perspective of engineers who like to nerd out on the tech and come out with a really cool little tool that that does something, but if you aren't testing and um, talking with people in the real world and real people who are studying snow and avalanches, you're not going to come out with the right product. You might just come out with something that, you know, measures something that is completely irrelevant to what you're trying to do. Um, so we've actually been, since we started working on propagation labs about three or four years ago, I think this is our fourth winter working on it. Um, we've been working with uh, different avalanche professionals sending them demo units, getting feedback, um, getting side-by-side -side pit profile comparisons, um, digging hundreds, if not thousands of our own pits to compare to the snow scope profiles. Um, so while it's a tricky thing to, to give a, you know, this is 100% what the snowpack looks like all the time, there's no air, like there's always going to be air, there's always going to be things that can be missed. Um, we feel like we've done a pretty good job of getting it out to, you know, we've had people using it in 10 different countries, Europe, North America, Greenland, New Zealand, like people that are using them with the explicit, hey, test this thing against your current state of the art, give us feedback, we're going to make improvements. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a slow process to build trust, um, especially after a lot of trust has been lost in the past. Um, with these sorts of tools. Um, and we're not expecting everyone to just take this thing out, blindly trust it, stick it in the snow and, and send it. Like it's, it's not a 
it's not a red light, green light tool. It's, it's a part of the entire picture. Um, and building that trust will just take time. Um, but we believe that it will get there again. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I would, I would key the listeners into checking out the website, propagationlabs.com and, and seeing some of those side by side hand harness profiles compared with the snow scope profiles. Um, and I thought it was pretty impressive. Um, I guess moving forward, I, I would, I would think if I, if I had a snow scope in my hand and was going out, um, doing some public forecasting or ski guiding for the day, you know, the way I feel like I would use it is to gather baseline data from a, from a snow profile and then, you know, reduce my uncertainty around the spatial variability in that zone by using the snow scope to verify whether those layers existed elsewhere in the, in the terrain. Am I, am I using it the right way? If, if, if that's my approach. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the, probably the best use case for it that we, we've seen is, is it really gives you the ability to collect a bunch of data very, very quickly and um, being able to assess differences of snowpack on different aspects, even different micro aspects um, is really is really great. We've had guides use it and they've just kind of taken it out of their pack every few hundred feet to assess where a rain crust was and when that rain crust uh, disappeared as they ascended in elevation. Um, similarly, yeah, we've had people use it to, to map out kind of entire zones to as- assess that spatial variability. And you can actually see uh, where certain layers are extended or certain layers have um, settled a little bit more in some places. But uh, yeah, that reduction of uncertainty in terms of spatial variability is probably the best use case for it. But one one other thing too, Caleb, like you mentioned, right? You're still digging a pit. You're still you know, doing your test results. You're still identifying you know, what that actual problem layer is in your snowpack. And you're doing a lot of things that the snow scope can't do in your pit, um, right? So as you said, right, you dig your pit, you find your problem layer, and then you use the snow scope to see if the snow on different areas is similar or not. And if you need to reassess your assumptions based on that, um, because traditionally, right, you dig a snow pit and you're like, yeah, this was a north aspect, mid elevation. I'm on this other north aspect, mid elevation nearby. It's probably about the same. I'm not going to take the time to dig another snow pit here. But with the snow scope, you can actually, you know, compare those profiles and and see if the snowpack is actually similar. And if it's not, maybe you dig again, or maybe you change your decision making based on that. Mm-hmm. And you can gather that information in, in, in mere seconds, which is pretty amazing. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've dug a snow pit and, and then say I'm ski guiding and the day progresses. We move into, um, you know, adjacent terrain that's still relevant to the snow pit that I dug, but there's still uncertainty in my mind. And it seems like using the snow scope is a great way to reduce some of that uncertainty. And like you said, you know, you, you might end up digging another pit or another several pits, depending on, on what you're dealing with in the snowpack. But, um, it seems like it's a, it's a good tool to kind of narrow that down for you. Um, here's a, here's a million dollar question. How thin of a layer will the sensors, are the sensors capable of 
of detecting. So if we have a, a very thin layer of near surface facets, um, or is the snow scope able to, to identify that? Yeah. So thin layers are definitely the trickiest thing, um, to test, right? It's, it's tiny. It's, uh, and they're, and they're dangerous, right? So for hard layers, for like a thin crust, super easy. Any thin crust is detectable, but right. That's usually not your <laughs> thing you're worried about. Um, so for thin weak layers, um, we, our, our specification is that anything thicker than 10 millimeters, we guarantee it will pick up. Um, thinner than that, it depends a lot on what's going on around that thin layer. If you have harder layers around it, um, you can pick up thinner and thinner layers, um, you know, down to even a couple millimeters because there's a large hardness difference between those. Let's say, you know, you have a millimeter layer, two millimeter layer of near surface facets on top of a crust that then, then is underneath a, you know, two feet of new snow. There's not much hardness difference between that new snow and that near surface facets. We're probably not going to pick up that near surface facets. So yeah, that's, that's definitely a limitation of the device. Um, and one that's important to understand. Mm -hmm. Joe, are there any other limitations that, that you all have identified and, and are kind of either just need to identify or are, have identified and are working on? Yeah, Caleb, we spend a lot of time thinking about ease of use here. Um, with a device like this, we there's a little bit of a learning curve on probing technique. Some people think you need to probe extremely slowly. Other people think uh, that you can kind of you can do it in a, a certain way of like ten centimeter increments or stuff like that. So communicating that the use of this device requires some education on technique um, and making sure that on the technical side, doing everything that we can to eliminate any differences in results due to probing technique um, is something we think a lot about. And, and maybe one of the limitations of the device is that it, it does take a little bit of a learning curve to understand how, how you use it. That, that being said, though, that is a question we get a lot is like, oh, is how quickly I'm pushing this into the snow totally changing my measurements? And within a pretty large um, speed range, we've, we've tested this going really slow, going really quick. Um, you actually don't see major differences or really any differences in the snowpack. And there's been quite a bit of literature on this from other penetrometers in the past, from uh, soil pen penetrometers in the agriculture industry that there's rate dependent effects that actually don't don't matter in the sp speed ranges that um, we use. So that's like another plus for, you know, if you want, you know, Caleb, you go out one day, your um, buddy goes out the next day with the same probe, probing different ways, you're going to get results that are still comparable to each other. Mm. So Gary, you, you had highlighted before about, you know, the, some of the challenges with getting the correct sensor to accurately measure the depth. Uh, one question I had that just popped back into my head was, do you then have another sensor on the snow scope for the hardness? So is there one sensor for depth and one sensor for hardness, or is that all within the same sensor? Yeah, it's, we have, we have a few extra sensors in there, but yeah, basically that's correct that there's one sensor for depth and one sensor for hardness. 
Yeah. And the hardness sensor is a similar idea to those used in a lot of the probes in the past, a similar technology to what's used in the snow micro penetrometer. Um, that one's less of a, a new thing, I'd say. Sure. And so just exactly what does the snow scope look like? How small does it get when it's packed down? How much does it weigh? You know, like it, it, my pack fills up pretty quickly when I'm heading out for a day. So that's, that's one thing that I think about is not carrying around a lot of extra gear that's going to weigh me down. You give us the stats on that. Yes. Yeah, so we've talked to a bunch of guides that are definitely concerned with the same things, size and weight. Um, so we've got it down to 280 grams and it's about the size of a standard avalanche probe. And just to be clear, this doesn't take the the place of a standard avalanche probe as rescue safety equipment. It does not. No, this would be in addition to your standard avalanche probe. Yeah. One of the big pieces of feedback we received about the SP one and the SP two um, was its size and weight. It was, it was kind of this, this large, um, device that had everything in it, including a screen. Um, and that made it a little bit bulky in the pact. Uh, now, you know, it, it all fits pretty nicely into like a standard probe pouch. Yeah. And so taking that screen away, we're able to use the Snowscope app on your smart device, your smartphone. Um, and once you've, once you've obtained a, a profile with the snow scope, it then pops right up on the app. Is that correct? And does that take cell cellular data or can you do that in an offline mode? Yeah. So that's, that's basically correct. Um, yeah. You take the profile, it processes it on the device and then it um, Bluetooths it right to your phone. Um, so yeah, no cellular network required. You can use this totally off the grid. Um, it's using your phone's GPS location to tag those profiles. Um, so all your profiles will be, you know, time and location shown on a map. Um, and then once you get back into cell service, or if you're already in cell service, all your profiles will be uploaded to the cloud. Um, you can view them, you know, if you're part of a, you know, guiding op and you have other guides, you guys can all be part of the same organization and, and view all those profiles shared privately, automatically in real time if you have cell service. Um, and then even on our, our web app as well, you can view those. So, yeah. And, and how is the snow scope powered? Does it take batteries? Yeah, it's, it's three AAA batteries. So similar to your beacon, it, it it's pretty low power. Um, so kind of like your, your beacon, you know, you can, depending on how much you're using it, go for change of batteries, maybe once or twice max in a season. Um, Joe, I think something that you mentioned earlier was a, a challenge that, that you all are working on is how to share this data, but it seems like it's pretty easy to, to share these observations within the app. Were you more speaking to sharing those observations outside of the network of the Snowscope app? Uh, great question. Yeah, it's kind of a interesting distinction. The sharing of the data is relatively easy, um, but the snowscope takes a profile in about five seconds, um, maybe 10 seconds by the time it gets to your phone. Uh, and it makes it really easy to accumulate quite a lot of data. It's really the filtering and consolidating of this data. Uh, that's the interesting and challenging problem. Um, so yeah, we've got 
plenty of data shared from the snow scope, but how to um, consolidate that and make it useful to say like forecasters looking at, you know, all of the scope profiles in their forecast area, they could have hundreds of these things to sort through in the course of a few days um, and making that a little bit uh, more consumable is, is the problem that we're really trying to work on. Mm. So say like, wouldn't it be great to be able to find any profile that had a, a hardness difference greater than one step, say, or talking about the thickness of a persistent weak layer, something like that. So being able to kind of sift through that data is where the challenge lies, eh? Hey? Exactly. And we've been doing a lot of work on that. Uh, so one of the features we really like is, is layer tagging. Um, so you can give a layer a name, you know, say, you know, Jan 5th uh, persistent layer, Jan 5th ring crust or something like that. And as other people uh, using the app see that same layer, um, it gets shown to them as an available option to label uh, their layer. And then you can filter on that particular layer, uh, we, which we think is, is pretty helpful in sorting through that kind of stuff. Getting into the more interesting pattern recognition and, and trying to identify some of those, like you said, maybe step changes or uh, weak layer identification stuff is, is definitely all on the table, but we're, we're trying to focus on, on getting the stuff we've got out there and uh, working great for our current users. And then we get to do some of the fun um, processing stuff when we have uh, lots of data to look at. Yeah. Right on. Um, Garrett, I was hoping you could t talk to us a little bit more about the app and maybe some of the other features of the app that are, are standalone from the Snowscope. So we've already established that probably the right context for the Snowscope is within uh, professional operational-based uh, folks, but, but it seems like the app would be perfect for any recreational user just to record Snowpit data even. Yeah, that's right, Caleb. So we haven't really talked about that yet, but... Um, in kind of the development of the Snowscope probe, right, we found that we were digging a ton of pits and, and wanted to record them in the field and, and record them in a way that's directly comparable to our Snowscope profiles. So um, we found that there wasn't a great way to record snow profiles on your phone in the field. And so we developed that as part of the app. Um, so pretty similar to how Snowpilot works. Um, you can create a record your snow pit that you dug, create all the layers. Um, tag grain sizes, grain types, um, test results, layer names, kind of all the standard uh, kind of swag elements you would typically um, tag on a, on a profile. You can do that all on your phone um, and then save that with location and everything just right there in the field. Um, and that feature, yeah, that's available to um, anyone who wants to use it. It's free on the App Store. Um, so we're just throwing that out there as a tool for anyone who's looking for something different than paper and pencil to be used in the field. Um, and then the other aspect of the app, which we started this season, is working with the Community Snow Observations Project, um, which is a kind of scientific research project that is mainly focused on hydrology. So predicting the amount of water in the snowpack for um, kind of water resources and runoff in the Western US. Um, and so what they're really interested in is getting more point on the ground observations of snowpack depths 
um, across mountainous terrain because mountainous terrain is the hardest for their models to accurately predict. Um, and so by having more, and it's the hardest to, for them to measure, you know, hardest to get out in. And luckily for them, like backcountry skiers are going out in that terrain for fun. Um, and they have, they're carrying the tools with them, a probe to measure the depth of the snow. Um, so we've included a feature in our app to allow people to easily record snow depths um, wherever they travel. And then that information is shared with the community snow observation project to help um, augment their models, as well as snow depths from the Snowscope probe and from pit profiles as well. Yeah. So with this app, and, and I, I've always really appreciated the ease of use of the Avatech snow profiling software. Um, and I should say, I, I really like Snowpilot as well. And, you know, Doug Chabot and, and others have put a lot into Snowpilot. And a lot of those profiles um, go into a, a research database, essentially, that's being utilized. And so... It, is there any work to kind of collaborate to make sure that researchers are getting as many data points that they can from either Snowpilot or the Snowscope software? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the last thing we we're trying to do is fragment where people are recording information and make it harder for scientists and people to view this. So yeah, we've, we've talked with uh, Doug Chabot and, and the guys at Snowpilot. Um, about integrations and, and trying to get all this data to feed in together. Um, you know, they've always been interested in a mobile app as well um, and just haven't developed it. So they were excited when we approached them with that idea. Um, there's definitely still work to be done to make one cohesive snow pit database. Um, it's a bit of a technical challenge for sure. Um, but in the short term, at least like this season, because we don't have that full integration lined up yet. Um, we've built some APIs so that all the data that we're collecting is available to scientists who want to pull from it, um, at least for now. And the long-term goal is um, hopefully to to create one just integrated Snowpit database. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Um, and, and I think I b began to say this before, but I, uh, there's a lot of times if I'm heli-ski guiding, you know, the pace can often be pretty quick and it's hard to take time to record quality observations out there. And maybe I put some of that stress on myself and I just need to slow down the pace, but it still remains a challenge for me. And so I think, uh, oftentimes I would, I would find myself just opening up my phone and recording, making a voice memo and dictating the snow profile. And then, uh, at the end of the day, I would then transfer that into a graphical snow profile. And so um, I think I think being able to use the app to to take all my observations in the field um, could probably speed up my my observation recording. So I'm pretty excited to try that out for this season for sure. Um, yeah. on, real quick, Caleb, on your voice point there, that's definitely something we've heard too. Like, you know, if it's dumping snow, you're not going to want to type things in on your phone. You're also not going to want to write things in a notebook. Like mm -hmm. the voice recording is, is typically what people use. So we've, we've actually included that in the app too, right? You might be halfway through putting info into a profile and you're like, I don't want to type anything anymore. We have a voice recording button in the app so that that voice recording is then associated with that profile that you started. And you can play it back later when you're home and finish your profile. And the long-term vision there 
is if we get enough data of people um, recording their voices with associated profiles, is we think it's it's pretty possible that we could eventually do a direct voice to Snowpit. So you could just talk to your phone, say what the layers are, and it would generate a graphic of basically what you're saying, um, which could save a lot of time long-term. Cool. Wow. Pretty amazing. I, I truly feel like we are living in the future here. <laughs> pretty amazing technology you guys are working on there. I was wondering if if you could speak from personal experience of being out in the field in the backcountry and and you know using the snow scope to verify uh, whether a persistent weak layer is present in the terrain. You know, like have you ever dug a hand profile and then gone and used the snow scope and picked up things that that you missed or it just kind of any personal experience using that that you could highlight might be helpful. Yeah, so for sure that's that's definitely happened where we can pick up layers that you might have missed. Probably the best, the most like striking example that I have is I was out with uh, Jackson Hole Ski Patrol a few years ago and we were doing a demo with them and um, we went to one of their sites where they you know dig pits all the time and and we poked around with the probe a little bit and showed the results and a couple of them were like, Oh, that looks pretty good. But this layer here, like that's definitely an error. Like we haven't been seeing that layer. Um, it's okay. And we, we dig a pit, we do an ECT and it fails on this layer that they actually weren't even aware of in the past. Uh, so it, it is cool in, in that way that it can identify layers that you might've missed um, before. Yeah. That, that's probably the best example I have. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah, and from a, I guess from like a recreational standpoint, right? Like we're recreational skiers. Um, we don't have any professional snow obligations. And I'd say, right, like we talk about this a lot as a professional tool um, because the, those are the people that are really putting out forecasts, you know, doing that kind of thing. Here in Utah, we have a, an amazing avalanche center that puts out the forecasts for us, tells us generally what's going on in snow. We have tons of observers out there. And so you get a really good idea of what's going on with the snowpack. So for skiing in Utah, 98% of the time, I'm not using this probe, right? I'm not making decisions to ski a slope based on the data in the probe because I'm generally going to be conservative based on whatever the forecast is. But that being said, you know, skiing in a new, a new area, we, I've done a few hut trips up in Canada where you, you fly into a new zone, you know, very little about the snowpack, even the forecasts in the area are a huge area, so might not even be applicable to your, to your zone that you're in. And so being able to go out, you know, the first day or two of the trip and, and cover a lot of ground and sample a lot of terrain and get a feel for what's going on in the snowpack. Um, even as a recreationalist, that's a, a really valuable tool in, in that circumstance. Um, yeah, absolutely. So what exactly goes into creating the snow scope, actually building the snow scope? How long does it take? Where do you do that? You know, what does that look like? Yeah, Caleb. So we're a pretty small operation right now. Uh, we don't have any dedicated office space, which means that we are building these things out of our living rooms and garages. Uh, and that's kind of part of the scrappiness um, of propagation labs that we've kind of grown into. Uh, with that said, though, we're not compromising any quality of build in these kind of situations and to illustrate that like for instance we do on snow tests of, of every single probe uh 
to verify that they're functioning properly. We've got like a checklist of like 25 items that, that we're checking through. Um, and every probe is calibrated uh, kind of based on, based on the on snow measurements uh, that it takes. So, you know, we're kind of guaranteeing our users and our customers uh, a certain degree of quality. We like to think of it as more of a artisan uh, digital snow penetrometer manufacturing uh, as opposed to kind of tossing it together in the garage. Yeah, right on. Handcrafted in Salt Lake City, Utah. Yeah. Precisely. Nice. And you you mentioned earlier, maybe before we were recording, but there's about 50 of these out right now and, and kind of like how many are you producing throughout this season? Yeah, so we usually build these things up in batches of a couple dozen uh, based on the demand that we're estimating per season. Um, building hardware is difficult. We deal with quite a few different suppliers and the chip shortage uh, affects us. Uh, but um, once we kind of have all the pieces together, um, we assemble our batch. And I think we've got about 50 of these things out there across 10 countries uh, currently. Um, and we're just seeing the demand increase for that. Yeah, great. Yeah, and, and I'd say too, like, right, we, we're pretty small scale. Um, we're doing this scrappy because we feel like with new technology, we're going to learn so much from from th- from probes being out there over the last few seasons and even moving forward. Like we haven't figured everything out. Um, we're not, you know, saying that this is the perfect thing um, and we're not going to learn more. So being able to keep it small relieves a lot of the pressure on having to go big. Um, and without having to go big, it gives us time to learn, to change, to improve with the industry um, instead of forcing something on the industry that might not be totally right. Right. Yeah. It gives you the ability to kind of pivot and be agile and, and change things on the fly. Hey. It also lets us have really meaningful relationships with every single one of our customers. I mean, there's no buy button on our website. We, we make everybody email us and have a conversation and that way we can have a direct line to every single one of our customers for support or for kind of helping them learn how to use the device um, or even just solicit feedback. Like we, we love talking to people, even if they're not a Snowscope user, just soliciting ideas, feedback. I think we've said it a couple of times already on this podcast that, you know, we're recreationalists and engineers probably before skiers. So, um, you know, getting, those viewpoints from the industry, the people that have their heads in the snow every single day is really, really valuable to us. So Garrett, you had mentioned, you know, the community snow ops partnership. Um, Joe, I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about the implications just within the scientific community. Yeah. So the scientific community is an interesting one. Um, we've got users across uh, snow science as well as kind of the operational side of uh, avalanche safety. Um, But the scientists who have been talking to uh, is really interesting. It's kind of drawn our attention to the need for objective data sets to improve models that these scientists are using in their research and that eventually become exposed to 
uh, forecasters and people doing snow safety operationally. Um, and it always brings up the anecdote of how the U.S. weather forecasting system um, was not as good as it is today before the uh, basically the widespread installation of objective weather stations. And it was these like objective weather stations set up throughout the U.S. Um, that were able to feed the model and really become up come up with accurate weather models that we kind of have today. Um, and we kind of see ourselves positioned in a similar spot to that, where we're trying to introduce this objective way to measure snow in hopes that we can use that data to then feed these scientific models to hopefully better understand and be able to better predict avalanches. And that would obviously trickle down from the scientific community into the, uh, operational community as well there so that that's kind of one of the overarching goals of the project and and you're speaking to snowpack modeling correct that's snowpack modeling specifically for identifying avalanches yep pretty hot topic these days and something i don't know too much about but i keep hearing a lot about snowpack modeling and and bringing that into operational forecasting um as a whole so that's that's pretty exciting, kind of a, a an exciting tie-in uh, for your technology here. It seems like. Um, well, Garrett and Joe, thanks for coming on the show today and and sharing about the snowscope. Uh, I'm I'm really excited that that you guys are carrying this torch on and that this didn't just fizzle um, several years ago. And and I'm sure it hasn't been an easy road. And I'm sure it's taken a lot of work. So uh, appreciate everything that you guys have been putting into this and and especially making the app free to everybody. That's such a huge resource for the community. Um, and I think it's going to really gain some traction here in the coming years. Um, and I'm also excited to, to check out the Snowscope and, and use that operationally this year as well. Yeah, Caleb, uh, thanks for having us on today. Um, happy to tell our story and yeah, we're excited to be adding value and getting a product to, you know, this community that we care a lot about that is hopefully going to make a lot of people's lives easier. Garrett, where can we where can we find more information or where can listeners find more information? Yeah, probably the best place is on our website, uh, propagationlabs.com. Um, we do updates on, you know, Instagram and social too, but we're engineers, we're bad at that stuff, so check out our website. <laughs> And you guys have other full-time jobs, right? This is like, like you said, like this is like a side hobby business, right? That's pretty amazing. It seems like it could easily be a full-time job. Yeah, it feels like a full-time job sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely a little bit of a passion project. Uh, and and yeah, we're, we're hoping, you know, that if, if this stuff takes off that, you know, hopefully it might morph from uh, the side hustle into the main hustle. Yeah. Right on. Well, again, thanks again for, for swinging by today. And uh, we look to, to hear more from you in the future with any, any updates that come along the way. Awesome. Thanks, Caleb. Yeah, you bet. Cheers. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I hope you check out more information on Propagation Labs. Go download the app right now. Check it out. 
Music on today's episode was provided by Ketza, with permission from the artist. Find more of their tracks at ketza.uk. Our artwork was created by Mike T, you the man T. Check out more of his work at his website, MikeT.com. Give us a follow on the social media. We are at the Avalanche Hour Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. It's the best way to keep up to date on new releases of episodes. And subscribe, rate, and review the show on whatever podcast platform you listen to it on. Don't forget to tell a friend. Help us grow the show. If you got any feedback for the show, you can reach out to us at theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the show, you can find a PayPal donation button on our website, www.theavalanchehour.com. If you're enjoying this type of content, I'm pretty confident that you're going to enjoy uh, one of our partner podcasts, Delivering Adventure, hosted by Chris Capio and Jordy Shepard. I've been really enjoying some of the episodes that have been coming out from those guys. Chris and Jordy do a great job of inviting some high-quality guests onto their show and um, they do a really good job of recapping and processing some of the conversation that happens during the shows i think you're really going to like it so head on over and check out the delivering adventure podcast found wherever you can find podcasts tune back in on january 1st for our next episode of the avalanche hour podcast hosted by brooke edwards brooke interviews jenna malone it's a great interview i know you're going to really enjoy it Um, And a a big welcome to our newest contributing host, Brooke Edwards. So uh, tune in on January 1st for that episode. Until then, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers. Cheers.